You're listening to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. I'm your host, Daniel Elkert, and today our topic is verbal security, the power of words. And I'm joined by Dr. Gary Vandenbos, a licensed psychologist and expert in providing psychotherapy to persons who are violent offenders and individuals with schizophrenia for more than four decades. Dr. Vandenbos was a professor at the University of Bergen in Norway for 27 years and is author of numerous publications, including Psychotherapy with Schizophrenia, The Treatment of Choice, and his influential chapter, Preventing Violence in Hospitals and Clinics, and the Hans Talk book, Violent Men. Dr. Vandenbos, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Dan. Gary, most of your clinical work has been with violent individuals with various diagnoses. For a psychologist who does not have experience working with such patients, what is the most important takeaway? Well, I think it's that words matter. The the core of psychotherapy is words, talking, Mm -hmm. conceptually understanding the events in our life, and so forth. Violent individuals, or individuals who are potentially violent individuals, are scared people. Using your words to provide protection and safety, even though it's symbolic protection, is what you need to do when working with such individuals. You know, I'll say things like, I won't let anyone else hurt you. You're safe here. Mm. Can I really protect them from everybody? No. Can I protect them from everything? No. But they're hearing my core message. I'm here to help them. I'm here to protect them. They can count on me. So it sounds like much of your clinical work has been with individuals who are violent offenders, but also for persons with a schizophrenia diagnosis. Could you comment for our listeners about whether people with schizophrenia are more likely to engage in violent behavior than other individuals? Sure. Schizophrenics are actually less likely to engage in violence than the normal clinical populations or even community populations. Anyone, including the schizophrenic, potentially, if they're frightened enough, if they feel trapped, may resort to violence. But mm. schizophrenics are not more violent than other individuals. That's, that's just incorrect. You know, a lot of the work that I've done has been with individuals who have previously been violent, have become involved with the courts. They may actually even be in prison, or I might be doing an evaluation of them prior to a trial or prior to sense, sentencing. Mm. Um, so you already know from their previous behavior and their court involvement that they are capable of violence and they have committed some violence. There, you're trying to do several other things, both prevent ongoing violence in the immediate situation, as as well as looking long-term towards how you could make a violence coping mechanism less of a first response for them as they move forward in their life. So one of the things I heard you say is that psychotherapy is about words. That was a really fascinating point, and it sounds like you've developed reassuring language in the form of short phrases. Could you provide a bit of background on how you developed this language? Well, my training began at Michigan State University, and I was working with Bert Karen, who specializes in working with schizophrenics. And his model for schizophrenia is an incredibly simple one, that the individual is living in a chronic state of terror, Hmm. that at any moment they could be killed. The Hmm. logical intervention from that is to use words and specific words. He recommends saying to a patient who one is working with, who clearly is agitated, upset, they may be hallucinating, they may be delusional, they may be threatening. 
is to say at an appropriate moment, I will not kill you. I will not let anyone kill you. You're safe with me. It's absolutely astounding for me to, to see a six foot four, 250 pound psychotic male who's, who's standing on a ward or in an emergency room screaming, threatening remarks uh, at staff members and have a five foot two, 125 pound nurse mm. say to him that she's not going to hurt him. She's not going to kill him. She's not going to let anybody kill him uh, and have the, the man heave a big sigh of relief, relax, wow. calm down, and then start engaging with her, following her directions to move around or sit down or drink a cup of water or, or whatever it is. So that, that was an, an initial experience. And I realized how, how scared a schizophrenic can be in a psychotic state. Mm. And it made a lot of sense to me because you were speaking directly to the terrified emotional core. As I began working with other populations, I found that the, the role of fear, fear of physical harm, played in so many different situations mm. that patients found themselves in. And so finding reassuring ways to say, you're safe here, this is a place where we can talk, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen, you know, was really essential to, to working with the populations, particularly the violent populations that I've worked with, which is, include a lot of prisoners, murderers, people who have abused other people in, mm. in varying kinds of ways, and so forth people who we don't usually think of as being frightened people. People who are violent tend to be people who are frightened, afraid of having something happen to them. I see. So there's this key idea here about a chronic state of terror. And connecting to your earlier comment about in psychotherapy, words matter. I'm hopeful. Could you break down for our listeners what have you found to be the most effective or reassuring short phrases? There's no question that I find the single most useful, helpful thing to be what I've already probably said three times, which is, I'm not going to kill or hurt you. I'm not going to let anybody else kill or hurt you. Mm. You're safe here with me. I will protect you. Mm. And I will say that to most any kind of patient that I'm working with who clearly is showing that, that they're frightened, that they're scared. I may say it even when they're just upset. Now, there's also other things that I say, things that can sound in context as throwaway lines because you don't know where it came from. And I will throw in phrases at any point in therapy when I think it's useful to the patient okay. because ultimately we have to structure therapy. We have to teach patients how to utilize therapy. We need to teach patients about what to do and what not to do. Hmm. And so in another phrase that you're very, very likely to hear from me if we're doing a demonstration with a patient is that therapy is for talking, not okay. for doing. Hmm. Um, and that little six or seven words can be fit into a string of three or four other sentences that you're, you're saying to the patient very easily, but it provides a framing structure. You know, hmm. Likewise, in terms of getting it clear to the patient, what therapy is about, 
is I will always, sometime in the, usually, I try to do it in the first session, but in the first two or three sessions with any patient, whether it's a therapy patient or it's a valuation patient or whatnot, and I'll say that in therapy, we can talk about anything, any thought, any feeling, any previous action. Nothing is taboo. Nothing is too mm. embarrassing or shameful to talk about. If it's happened in your life, we need to talk about it, particularly mm. if it's scary or embarrassing or ashamed or something that you would keep a secret of. You see right there, I used an awful lot of words yeah. to drill in on a simple point that I, I could have done and in some cases would do in only five or ten words. If I'm really rolling and the patient looks like they're resonating and, and it's speaking to something that the patient might be quietly thinking about but hasn't said anything about, I'll continue to elaborate in that kind of a way. So in each of those instances, using direct language to convey safety to the patient, it makes me wonder, conversely, what are examples of phrases that psychologists should avoid when working with these different patient groups? Well, first of all, I would say that I view psychotherapy as a self-corrective process. So in one way, I would say you need to do the best that you can do to capture the moment, to capture the patient's emotional experience, to share with the patient what you think is going on. And if you're wrong, my experience is that the patient will either ignore what you've been saying or they'll kind of psychologically hit you in the side of the head with a baseball bat saying, you're not listening to me. So that if you're paying attention, you can correct the words, you can figure out what the nuance that you missed was and so forth. But there is one thing that I, I do say to avoid when one is dealing with violent patients. And that is, don't say it's okay to be angry. Hmm. That is easily misunderstood. And for many patients who are not psychologically sophisticated, who have lesser education and so forth, the word be is often experienced as it's okay to act or behave. You know, and I don't want to say it's okay to act angry or behave angry because that's not what I mean. Hmm. You know, what I really want to say is that it's okay to feel anger. Hmm. I want to get across to the patient that Anger is a natural response to danger, frustration, and so forth. I want to teach them over time. Um, actually, this will often be uh, also another short phrase that I might throw any, anywhere. And I'll frequently say to the patient, emotions are really a signal system telling you to pay attention, to look mm -hmm. around, to see what's going on around you, to see what's going on in the interaction you're having to pay attention to what's going on inside your body. You know, emotions are not something to be afraid of, although many, many potentially violent people are afraid of their emotions because so many of their emotions are upset, angry emotions, and they feel they have to control them. I want them to understand that whatever they feel, I want to hear about because we want to understand those feelings, understand their anchors, in reality, there are anchors in their current interpersonal relationships, and to understand that the source of their anger is probably in the present, but it's not, if it's not in the present, 
It's in the past, and something about the present is putting them in touch with that past experience. I see. So in that way, when I put in a phrase like that, I also start to lay the framework for the fact that our life is a continuing thing and that everything that ever happened is potentially relevant at any moment in time mm-hmm. if it's intense enough. Certainly. So, so far today, we're talking about the power of words and we've discussed, you know, what are effective phrases to use with these populations of patients and what are less effective ways. And I'm wondering beyond words, what other steps can psychologists take to humanize or normalize communications with these patient groups? Well, again, it's using words, being empathic, expressing empathy about the patient's experiences and feelings. Uh, That's a strong piece of what you need to convey. You're looking for opportunities to be able to kind of put together a concrete, um, fairly elaborate in some ways, observation about the situation. I'm looking for an opportunity to say to the patient, that situation was very upsetting. Mm. You felt hurt and betrayed. It's painful to feel hurt and betrayed. Anyone who experienced what you did would feel hurt and betrayed. That is a normal human reaction. Yeah. I'm trying to get a statement in like that because very often when, when people experience shame or guilt or whatnot, they think that it's only happened to them. They think it's something to be ashamed of. They think it's something that they need to hide in some way. And while I certainly don't want them walking around and, spilling their guts to everybody, I want them to understand that in therapy, those things that are difficult to talk about, those painful events of the present and of the past is part of what psychotherapy is about. And by understanding it, it helps us to gain control of it. It helps neutralize the experience. It helps us find our common humanity. Yeah. So there's this notion here of conveying empathy and providing the patient feedback that it's all right for them to experience an emotion and that is a cue to what may be going on inside their body. How might clinicians or psychologists go about conveying that sense of empathy, particularly for more early career psychologists who who have less experience working with patients that do have a history of violent behavior? You know, I think essential is listening skills. I see. Listening to the patient, looking at the patient, you know, and remembering that when the patient talks to you about the events in their lives, they're probably giving you 5%, 10% of their experience and their emotional reactions to a given situation. Now, you want to work to bring out more of it, But you also want to get a sense of whether you can fill in, at least in your own mind, some of the pieces that were going on in addition to the words that they said, so that you can form a richer empathic response back to them about the situation. And to get them to talk more, you don't just say, tell me more, tell me more, what were you feeling, what were you feeling next? It's best if you can say, that was painful, that Mm. hurt. Anyone who was in that kind of situation, anyone who experienced that, 
anyone who had somebody say something like that to them would have felt that way. That is a human reaction. Anyone would have had it. Can you tell me more about, and then fill in the blank of what you would like them to elaborate and say more about? Yeah. So what about, Gary, in the, the physical room uh, with patients? What physical steps do you recommend a psychologist take to promote patient well-being and potentially safeguard themselves? That's a really good question. If you're working with violent individuals, you don't want to be a naive fool and get yourself beat up. Mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, a frightened therapist is generally not a very effective therapist. You know, there's two school of thoughts about the practical details of where you should sit. You know, I mean, the reality is, is that in most clinical settings, you do therapy in a room that has one door. Mm-hmm. You know? And so the practical question is, do you sit close to the door or do you let the patient sit close to the door? The rationale for the therapist sitting close to the door is that you can get up and get away. You can run away if the patient gets agitated. And, and there's merits to that position. It's not the one that I personally recommend. It's not what I do. I sit away from the door. I put the patient near the door. The door is unlocked. The patient, even if I'm working in an inpatient setting, the patient can leave the room. And I found that the vast, vast majority of individuals, including murderers, sociopaths, and so forth, are much more likely to leave a potentially upsetting potentially violent situation if given the opportunity than they are to fight. The attacking patient, if they're not trapped by me sitting by the door, is more likely to leave than anything else. It's also the case that if I'm working with the patient and they're in a period of extreme upset, maybe they've had maybe they've had physical encounters with some of the staff on the ward and so forth. Maybe Uh, in the last several sessions with me. They've made threats and so forth. In that case, I explained to the patient that I'm interested in making sure that we're all safe, that nobody gets hurt. They know I don't want to hurt them. They know I don't want to kill them, and I don't want to let anybody else hurt them. And so I will tell them that I'm going to have one or two people from the ward sit in the meeting, and I do that. I still have the patient closest to the door, I have myself farthest away from the door. You know, in this kind of a situation, my chair is likely, because there's other people in the room too, my chair is likely to be about 10 feet away from them. Sitting sort of between us but against the wall is one or two staff members who can assist me in restraining the patient if that becomes necessary. I've had incredibly few violent encounters occur when you add those additional layers of protection. Now, I I would say, I also mentioned distance just a moment ago. You know, uh, often in therapy, I'm I'm only four or five feet away from the person I'm doing therapy with. Mm -hmm. If I'm doing therapy with somebody who's acutely psychotic, if I'm doing therapy with somebody who's very agitated and upset and making threats, I increase that space. I don't do it because I'm afraid. I do it so that I'm less frightening to the patient. Mm -hmm. If instead of being at the usual four or five feet, I'm at seven or eight feet, I'm less threatened. I'm less threatened by them, and I'm less threatening to them. I see. If you're 
seven, eight, nine feet away, well, it takes a couple of seconds to be able to get up and to move and cross that space. Mm-hmm. That means there's time for everybody to take action and, and be involved. I very, very rarely do I use belts with patients, inpatient patients, but I often will let patients know that uh, there are belts available on the ward. They tend to restrict motion and, 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 and their freedom. If they want to use belts, they should let me know. If they're very frightened about their own impulses, and they would be reassured by having some belts on, not that totally constrain their arms to their body, but that restrict the range of motion, hmm. uh, either the range of motion of their arms or their legs, that I'm willing to allow that to happen. It's not my preference. I don't recommend it. But if they're very frightened about their own impulse control, that is an option that's available to us. Of course, I will always say to them, but the best option of all is for you and I to talk, for you to tell me about what you're thinking, about what you're feeling, about your reactions to other people that are upsetting and agitating to you. We can talk about those things. We can understand them. We can figure them out. We can make them go away. So I'm always favoring words over restraint, additional people present to control the patient if they do get violent and so forth. But you can't be naive when you're working with a violent population, including people who have beaten people up so severely that they've ended up in a hospital for a week or they've ended up dead. So many of these steps, again, are consistent with that notion of creating an environment where both patient and the psychologist feel a sense of safety, and that's reflected in your recommendation to keep potentially a greater distance between yourself and, your pa- and the patient, and being thoughtful about how you're arranged in relation to the, the door in the therapy room. Um, so we just have a minute or two remaining here today, but for psychologists who are interested in learning more about applying best clinical practices with these different patient groups, what information-based resources would you recommend? Well, obviously, I recommend my own book, Psychotherapy with Schizophrenia, The Treatment of Choice. The Hans Tox book, Violent Men, I also recommend. It was really when the judge asked me to start working with some violent patients back in the mid-70s. It was the book that inspired an awful lot for me. And I I liked the book so much that I helped to get it reprinted two more times. The book was originally published, I think, in 69. And I helped to get it republished in 1992 and again last year. Beyond those, I read a lot. I I survey the table of contents and whatnot in 2025 journals. I'm a big consumer of words, a mm-hmm. consumer of ideas. I particularly like the journal Psychology of Violence okay. uh, for basic research across a lot of violent situations. I like the journal Threat Assessment and Management as a journal that explores more practical applied research and draws it out. And uh, the Division 29 journal, Psychotherapy, is, in my opinion, one of the best clinical journals that is published. A lot of articles exploring different aspects of the process of psychotherapy, also publishes some outcome research and other kinds of things. Great. 
Well, those are wonderful recommendations. I want to thank you for providing those. Unfortunately, today we are out of time, but I want to thank my guest, Dr. Gary Vandenboss, for his time and thoughtful input on today's episode, Verbal Security, The Power of Words. I'm your host, Daniel Elkert, and please join me next time for another episode of The Clinical Consult, brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists.